welcome to Beyond Gameplay. I'm Kelly Dunlap. This month has been all about the ways that tabletop gaming can bring people together and support personal journeys of growth and discovery. To finish out our series, I spoke with Adam Johns and Adam Davis, also known in the mental health and game space simply as The Adams, about their journey creating Game to Grow, a nonprofit dedicated to using games of all kinds for therapeutic, educational, and community growth. So Adam, Adam, welcome to Beyond Gameplay. I'm so excited to have you guys on the show. Yeah, thanks, thanks so for much. We're so us, excited Kelly. to be here. You're, you are my first uh, two for one. Oh, well, I'm honored. Well, <laughs> that's, we are that's more than the sum of our parts. Yeah, we're almost like we're more closer to like a person and a half than we are. That's true. Uh, Adam and I once we once ran really fast into each other and merged into one sort of uh, symbiotic uh, creature. Yeah. Oh. Called, called Station. Station. Yeah. It's actually a Bill and. It's a Bill and Ted bogus journey <laughs> reference. Oh. One I apparently just uh, grossly missed. So. But I, that makes sense because you guys literally are referred to as the Adams. That's that's pretty true. It's been a, an unofficial branding that has um, amazingly served us very well that's true and so i know you guys but our our audience maybe does not so can you talk a little bit about yourselves your background and what brought you to game to grow or like the the origin story of game to grow sure so adam johns and i adam davis met in graduate school we both went to antioch university seattle um i was there studying uh, at that time getting a, a master's with a specialization in drama therapy um, and, uh, Adam and I met in our, was it a family of origins class? Or it was a multicultural That's class. That's what it was. It was a multicultural class. And Adam and I met there. And one of our assignments was to, um, bring in something to talk about sort of the cultures that we participate in. And Adam and I both brought in stuff. Uh, I think we both brought in dice or something like that to show that we were both uh, part of geek and gamer culture. And we both were like, oh, our names are both Adam and we both like dice. Oh, so this is a match made in heaven. Get that like nod from across <laughs> the room. Yeah. Oh, I, I see you. I okay. see you in your geekdom right mm-hmm. over there. <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, we actually we like saw each other at a Penny Arcade Expo. And it was just like we both knew we were in the same the same tribe for sure. Uh, and then at, at the time I was running sort of a, an after school program uh, using Dungeons and Dragons uh, that I sort of took the group over. I was I was um, uh, took the group over uh, at, at the time. It was like kind of a sort of a dropping group where kids could play Dungeons and Dragons and it wasn't um, facilitated with a lot of intention. Um, and then I took it over and was studying drama therapy and wanted to use it more intentionally. A lot of the kids that were attending were, uh, you know, had d- diagnoses of autism or ADHD or some sort of uh, something that meant, meant that they needed a little support uh, being social. And uh, so then when I took the group over and we started, you know, using the, the Dungeons and Dragons a little more intentionally with the stuff um, I was learning in grad school. And then my my fellow uh, facilitator at the time left, moved away. So I sort of headhunted Adam to get him to join uh, join forces and be co-DMs, co-Adams. <laughs> so Adam came up to me after a class one day and he said, hey, do you want to um, get paid to come play Dungeons and Dragons with socially awkward kids? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's that's the dream. <laughs> that's the, that's everything I want in the world. Yeah. So at the time when when Adam came in, uh, they they started the kids started referring to me as Adam Prime and uh, Adam Johns as Adam Two Point Oh, uh, so some of the kids still call us that. Um, so then we we started running the groups uh, there, and then u- utilizing a lot of the stuff we had been learning at Antioch. 
um, to make the game a little bit more intentional, and we were realizing just how powerful the, the program could be. So we struck out on our own and founded an organization called Wheelhouse Workshop, which um, we ran for four years. It was a for-profit company that got up to three groups uh, a week here in uh, the Seattle area, and then we uh, transitioned into the nonprofit Game to Grow in 2017. Um, and now we're running seven groups per week, uh, serving up to 56 kids every week using uh, modified rules of Dungeons & Dragons. So I just want to take a second, um, just because not everybody who li listens to the podcast is necessarily a clinician or one that does groups. And so when you say that you do seven groups in a week, I know what my reaction to that is. And so I'm, can you share a little bit about, like, what does it mean to run seven D&D sure. groups in a week? So to be fair, um, Adam and I got up to running five groups a week each. Um, and uh, oh, those are, are uh, 90 minutes each. Um, those are ac across the greater Seattle area. So we uh, run a group in West Seattle and a group in Greenwood, neighborhood of Seattle, and a group in Kirkland. And so those are a solid hour drive between some of those locations. So there was it was a large portion of a portion of our week um, spent uh, doing those groups. So uh, Adam and I realized that the way that we needed to uh, transition was to hire people. So now we have four employees who are uh, trained facilitators now of therapeutic Dungeons and Dragons. So Adam and I only run uh, three groups a week now, uh, and then our, our facilitators run the other one. So our groups are uh, once a week for ninety minutes. Um, kids come for a quarter at a time, so the campaigns generally last around 10 weeks. Uh, and uh, it's been a really interesting journey because, you know, like I said, Adam and I used to run five groups a week, and it, that's uh, five different storylines, each one homebrewed, because we, we re reuse some curricula, but for the most part we are uh, making plans for each session to meet the needs of those particular kids. So we don't, we don't recycle things in the same way that you would with, like, a module off the shelf. We're really heavily improvising and heavily world building and collaboration with our players. So it was a lot of things to keep track of and a lot of notebooks to carry around. And um, just again, to, to check in that when you say homebrew, you're talking about making these kinds of campaigns like by yourself, that you're doing it. You're not reading it out of a book. You are creating these worlds and these stories. Correct. Um, and moreover than that, we also create um, all the sort of puzzles and challenges um, specifically oriented at the challenge levels or the, I guess, the areas of growth for the individuals at the table. So um, we will look at the table as a whole and what the table will benefit from from encountering, but also the individuals at the table and what what kinds of challenges or what kinds of things they need in front of them in order to um, promote and encourage the, the growth that that player needs. Um, so there's a lot of sort of, uh, I guess, de depth of field um, as we're doing our planning process. Not only are we creating wholly unique storylines and wholly unique uh, worlds, uh, often in collaboration with the players themselves, but then we're also really trying to keep in mind the psychological growth of of the individuals at the table. So there, there's not like there's a and a d therapist manual that currently exists. And for other clinicians, you know, if you're doing, say, CBT treatment, there's there's a plan for that. If you're doing DBT, there's a plan for that. If you're doing psychoanalytic, there's a plan for that. How do you guys navigate this space that really is kind of uncharted territory? And how, how do you make sure that you stay true to the, the therapeutic underpinnings? Um, oh, man, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so I guess navigating the space um, came a lot from the backgrounds that Adam and I had during during grad school, and that we sort of came in with in our perspectives and attitudes. Um, my background was, was in marriage and family therapy, and um, a lot of my perspective is about 
systems theory. Um, I've really latched on to like structural family therapies or narrative therapy as a as a family modality um, as ways of, of applying. And that's all, you know, getting getting a little more uh, technical into the psych side. Um, and Adam's background's all in drama therapy and in education and facilitating groups. Adam's been a group facilitator for kids for oh, what like. 15 years yeah, ago? Yeah, forever. <laughs> like, <laughs> forever. So, um, yeah, my, my background, bef- even before I got into to drama therapy, was I was a drama teacher. And before I got into drama teaching, the, my access point to all of this was through political theater and participatory theater, where uh, I studied uh, theater of the oppressed in South Africa, learning about how to use uh, scene work and uh, incorporate the audience participation in scene work to um, role play scenes in order to practice for real life. So there is um, a whole lot of uh, other things that aren't, you know, traditional counseling that go into the work that we do at Game to Grow. Um, there's a whole process where we want to create scenes that are not identical to their real lives, but have, you know, what we can call analogical induction, where they can then uh, take the the pieces of that scene, the plot, characters, and story elements, and then like uh, project some other stuff from their lives onto it. The sort of narrative transference that makes the the work so powerful, and that's the that's the goal that we have in the groups is to is to really take the the stuff in the game in the story and make that part of uh, the therapeutic process. It's not just like uh, gamification of social skills where we're giving in-game rewards for pro-social behavior. We're really trying to 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 harness the power of narrative transference and and the, the what but some people who play role playing games call bleed where uh, the stuff in the game and the stuff in real life kind of blends together and you you sort of forget that you're playing a game. So I guess the the sort of shorter answer to that is um, we've taken a lot of stuff from our background and 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 taken the little pieces that we see as applying really well to um, to this modality or this approach. Uh, and use them in a really intentional way and put them together to create our own unique approach and unique um, uh, modality for for this. And now now we've started really defining that. Actually, as we're, as we're developing um, uh, the critical core materials, we're really trying to incorporate a lot of that in. And, and like you said, there's no manual for this, so we want to help create something like that or help get something like that out into the world so other people can have those, those tools at their disposal too. So I'll definitely be asking about Critical Core, um, but before we go down that very exciting rabbit hole, I, I do want to have a better understanding about when you're talking about doing these D&D groups with kids, who are you seeing and and what are the problems? That, I mean, social skills is a huge like area for, for development and practice, but what are you seeing? Who are you seeing and what seems to be resonating with them? So most of our kids come in, and I say kids, uh, we have players from everything from age 8 to early 20s. Um, so a lot of our players come in with some degree of social isolation, um, oftentimes related to but not directly causal from uh, a diagnosis. So we have a lot of players with diagnoses of uh, autism or ADHD, a lot of whom have uh, anxiety or depression. But one of the main things that uh, we see uh, in our in our participants, and this is where how parents find us, is some degree of... Um, social capacity that is lacking. So I, I use the term social capacity because social skills tend to be um, thought of as very much like a, 
a classical learning environment where kids need to be taught skills. Um, but a lot of our kids come in and they have been taught social skills, but what they lack is the desire to use them and the uh, capacity to use them effectively. So we have a lot of our, our players come in who are socially isolated, and oftentimes we consider them as having lagging uh, social capacity. So a lot of them need to be introduced into meaningful social experiences the way that um, kids might on a playground where they you know participate in semi-structured narrative social play as a way to engage with each other and build relationships and then build social skills in a way that is uh, is natural, the way that we would sort of a social learning theory where we can uh, experiment with social behaviors, have modeled social behaviors, and then learn uh, either directly or through the sort of reciprocal modeling of, of uh, participants in the group. So if they if they by and large have the skills and but what's lacking a lot of times is the motivation, what what is the secret sauce to either D and D or just role playing in general that gets these kids? Because um, you know, there's a big difference between needing to learn a skill and then having the internal drive to want to apply that skill. So, what is it about you know D and D or tabletop in general that you think gets at that motivational, that underlying motivational aspect to actually want to engage with others? I, ultimately, I think the the thing that really pulls people in is it's play and it's exciting and it's a group where you get to come and have fun in a setting with with peers with other people um who get to see you and get to um uh, take your ideas and add to them and uh, allow everybody to feel excited um for having done so um and so a lot of a lot of what we create really is an intrinsically appreciated environment for socialization um, and some of that is just in the process of making it a positive space, making it a space where people can um, mess up or have challenges and not feel overly judged for it and not feel um, that that uh, mistake will ostracize them from the group. And where people can, where the players who come in um, get a chance to feel supported uh and feel uh, uh challenged and engaged to to then overcome those those challenges together and the strength of that happens through building relationships and, and like building re relational space between the facilitators and the, and the participants but also building relationships between uh the players and each other which is uh, you know as i mentioned earlier the kids have a whole um big void in their life for uh, social interaction. So oftentimes uh, participants come in without ever having had a friend, certainly not a best friend. Um, so then we have seen participants come in to play a game of Dungeons and Dragons, which is very relational. It's, it's, a, it's a fellowship game, so the kids are playing together. And then all of a sudden, these players who have never had a friend before, you know, they have a team that relies on them. And, and uh, that can be really transformative, like Adam was saying, for a lot of these players. And we've had some players come out of the group with with friends that they will probably have for a long time, if not the rest of their lives, um, because they're the, the very first um, or sometimes the foundational friends or the, or the first opportunity they have to make friends with um, people where they can really build those relationships in a, in a positive way and learn communication skills um, for interacting with those individuals that they've had a chance to have some trial and error. And a lot of our, our participants will, you know, ex exchange phone numbers and have to figure out how to awkwardly exchange contact information for the oh. first time. And it's 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 a, it's amazing to watch. You know, I, 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 Adam and I are the 
um, founders of this organization. And so we got to see, especially back when we were running five groups a week, we got to see a lot of growth of our kids. And I, I remember once at the end of last uh, spring quarters, right before summer, um, we do a different different sorts of programming over the summer. So the kids were going to not be in the same uh, D&D campaign for a couple of months. And at the end of that campaign, my group of sort of socially isolated young boys, uh, they hugged at the end of the quarter um, and they they said, I'm going to miss you. Uh, I'll, I can't wait to see you back in the fall. And then, you know, they exchanged phone numbers so they could text over the summer. And that is, you know, it seems like a small thing to exchange a phone number and ha- get a text message. But for a lot of a lot of our players, that is a huge thing. Uh, to have them have the opportunity to have somebody say, look at them in the eyes and say, I missed you. I was going to ask if if you could recall off the top of your head some kind of light bulb moment where either during play or, or the session in general, where you, you saw the light bulb go on for them. Um, but what I just heard is kind of like a, a almost a light bulb moment for you <laughs> where you're like, hey, this is actually, this is a thing that's working. This is a thing that they're enjoying and it's actually having effect. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's hard to, to isolate particular light bulb moments. There's there's been a couple um, over the years that I think were really, um, really transformative. And, and you know, the, the, the cool thing about being a, a therapeutic game master is that we are also having the opportunity to play. So we are, uh, you know, Adam mentioned earlier, the transformative power of play, we get to participate in that. Um, and guide the process through active, actively playing with our participants. And that's been um, such an honor to be able to do that with them. Um, one of the moments that I think of as a, as a transformative moment for a, a player is I, I had a group that needed to um, sort of a long, complicated plot where they, uh, the plants are taking over the world and the um, players have to figure out how to stop the age of green from taking over. Um, and in order to do so, they have to talk to a Draco Lich. Um, and this is the last remaining Draco Lich uh, oh, exists. A, a Draco Lich, which is like a, what? Um, <laughs> it's it's like an undead dragon or a dragon uh, skeleton that's yeah. maintained by dark magic. So the the the, the backstory here that uh, I made up that we sort of collaboratively created together was that the dragons were fighting the the plants, and in order to do so, they created these monstrosities um, that were basically dragons that did uh, necrotic magic damage. Um, but they created them, and then after they used these Draco Liches to fight back the plants, they thought they were abominations and wanted to kill them. So then there is the, the fight between the dragons and the Draco Liches, and there's one Draco Lich left, and he's been in hiding. And the players, because they know that they need to fight back the plants, they go find the Draco Lich um, to try to ask for its help. And this is the last remaining Draco Lich who has been largely betrayed by the dragons who created him. And so the players went in, and I was expecting them to sort of, um, you know, have to make some sort of deal with the devil uh, sort of things because the Draco Liches are, you know, sort of evil. They're sort of undead, magical, necrotic dragons. Um, and so the players go in there and ask the Draco Lich to help them fight back the plants. And, you know, in the game of Dungeons & Dragons, I'm the game master, and I'm playing all of the NPCs. I'm playing all the non-player characters, so I'm the Draco Lich. And then they say, well, help us fight back the Age of Green, and the Draco Lich says... Why should I do that? I have no family, no friends, no kin. I don't want to save this world. Um, and then one of my players um, looked at me and says, "Yeah, I know how that feels. I uh, I don't oh. I don't have any friends either. It's, that's really lonely." And then <laughs> I I I was sort of taken aback as the game master, and I had to uh, to turn that character from a sort of evil character who they needed to barter with to a sympathetic character that they needed to validate his feelings. And then he became a sympathetic character where they uh, worked with him to 
corrupt more dragon eggs in order to make more Draco Liches so that he didn't have to be alone anymore. Um, and at the end of the session, uh, we always ask something that stood out for them. And um, this particular young person said, I, I never expected to have empathy with a Draco Lich. I love how that's the takeaway. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like in my, my podcast closet, like crying because it's <laughs> such a, oh my gosh. I Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, those those kinds of moments are uh, are really amazing, and that that player you know has been playing for a couple of years now, and the characters that they have created have sort of um, they they've steadily evolved into into being more outwardly pro social. I would say. Yeah, they've sort of reflected that player's growth, which has been another really interesting thing to observe. Oh, that's so cool! I feel like we could just talk about these kinds of moments all day and I would just be weepy all day. Um, but as you mentioned earlier in the show, you guys referenced critical core and I was hoping maybe you could, could tell me a little bit about what that is. Yeah. So critical core is a take home kit uh, really designed for parents and teachers and therapists uh, who've never played um, a game like Dungeons and Dragons or, or a tabletop RPG before, but who are interested in it and who are interested in using it, especially with um, uh, challenges related to autism or an autistic population. Um, so the kit's been actually a project for a long time now, um, three years. Oh wow! At least that right now. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's been uh, we've been working along with um, other organizations, um, McGarry Bowen, which is a um, a uh, marketing company out of Hong Kong that originally uh, sort of had the idea for the kit and uh, Virginia Spielman, who um, is the executive director for the Star Institute and works with um, a lot of, um, uh, I guess, uh, autistic youth uh, would be the best way to put it, but, but a lot around um, sensory, sensory processing. And she works from um, ICDL, which is a, a sort of perspective on uh, play therapy um, specifically designed for autistic youth. Um, and, uh, as we've been working along with them, we wanted to really develop something that was both accessible and approachable for um, people who've, who've never played before, but who could jump in and, and start playing right away, but also has the the depth to allow for somebody who who is familiar with role-playing games to really find a lot of good and useful tools and a lot of good useful um, things for, for them to apply, including the, the modules, which will specifically give challenges and instances designed for um social social capacity building growth and you guys kickstarted this wildly successfully kickstarted this (laughs) yes (laughs) we we reached our funding goal in eight hours what was your funding goal uh 40,000 48,000 48,000 and what did you end with Uh, 244,000 yeah it was it was 500% just 509% I think is what we ended with um that's, I'm, I'm, we're, we're blown away. I'm still blown away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the goal for Critical Core, like we talked about earlier, is when Adam and I started this, it was just the two of us. We got up to running five groups a week and realized we couldn't really do much more uh, serving more kids without expanding. So we hired a bunch of people and that's been fantastic. And we still wanted to get the, uh, the, the approach uh, even farther to serve even more kids around the world. So uh, critical core is, is really that, that way to do that. So we, we, Adam and I have done trainings um, around the country and we've done presentations uh, for therapists and doctors and, and nurses and things like that. 
Um, and we oftentimes tell stories and, and teach a little bit about how we do what we do. And then, you know, we've had people come up to us afterwards and say, this is amazing. I really want to do this. How do I, how do I play Dungeons and Dragons? Um, let me, I want to get started. How do I play? Um, and that's, it's hard. Uh, anybody who's been a game master in a, in D and D or Pathfinder, any kind of role playing game that has a game master, it generally takes some time to learn the rules and get good at it. And so part of our goal here is to create a simplified rule set. That is super accessible. Once you understand the guiding principles, you can kind of just pick it up and play with it, really, to, to play with the, the participants. Um, so the like Adam said, the, the, the rule set is simple, um, but then it's got a facilitator's guide and some modules that allow you to use a simplified rule set that is a lot of the ways that we've modified 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons in our groups, um, sort of built into a, a, a system that can be played pretty quickly with then module design and facilitator's guide that, that allow... Some of the things that we've been able to do in, in groups through Game to Grow, we've been able to do that through um, some sort of best practices around how we run the groups, um, some of the uh, approaches that we take to module design. So that's the really exciting part about Critical Core is that those bits and pieces are now uh, we have, we'll be making so many Critical Core kits. I think the last I saw, you could stack them up as high as the, um, as the Statue of Liberty twice. Yeah. Well, um, that's a lot of kits. We'd be, a lot of kids out there that are. Gonna uh, that's a lot of kids. Yeah. Yeah. The the weight of shipping kits apparently is more than the weight of five cars. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so that's you're moving a lot of product. Yeah. Is what I'm hearing. Yes. And so I'm kind of a I guess a nerdy design esque question for you guys is um, as as you both know I'm working on a, a similar project for I Thrive We're making a an RPG that is based on like social and emotional learning skills for uh, for teens and I know one of the most difficult aspects of this entire design process of around creating a tabletop RPG and even extending to you know other kinds of board games and even digital games is finding the balance between embracing genuine play. And, and genuine gamefulness while still providing, I don't know, the, the space, the content, the awareness, the, the, the magic, you know, je ne sais quoi of that, that therapeutic impact. So how did you guys, how did you find that balance? So it's fair to say you're absolutely right. It's, it's one of the most difficult parts of this, which is, so much more about um, game master skill and facilitator skill than it is necessarily about the game itself. And so a lot of what what you're looking at is is you need to be able to create a game that has structure, um, that has uh, pieces that tell you what to do. Given this particular kind of challenge in front of you or this thing this, this player is trying to do, is there a rule set that helps define what you're supposed to do for that? Um, but then also leaving things open enough or I guess making it clear enough to the facilitator that you can throw all that structure out the window in response to play. That playfulness or that, or that um, uh, engaging in a, in a fun part of the activity is really the goal to, to the whole thing over the structure itself. Um, so if, if I have a player that, that um, wants to pick up a candlestick and brandish a candlestick and make that their main, their main weapon of choice... Um, yeah, that sounds great. And in the rules of, you know, 
fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, that might not be a great weapon to use, and that might that might uh, put them at a severe disadvantage for that being their weapon of choice. But in the rules of me being playful and me being engaging at the table and me seeing that player and the and the engagement that they want to input into the table in a playful way, um, I can say, yeah, it does the same damage as the short sword that you have. Um, and now you're getting to do it with a candlestick, and that gets to be a defining aspect of your character. And so a lot of the mechanical parts of, of the game as we're building them into Critical Core are all about saying, uh, encouraging the facilitator, encouraging the game master to say yes to playfulness, um, but then still give an underlying structure that they can utilize if they're not comfortable with that level of improvisation or that level of, of um, making things up. So the relationship between the player and the facilitator is one that is much more um, like protagonist to protagonist, or at least not antagonistic. Correct. Certainly. Um, in fact, the, the, the entire sort of outline and, and description of the game is really what you're trying to do here is that you are making a story together. The, the foundation of, of this experience is that we're going to make a story together. But stories don't just have, you know, a single part. It's not like in a story, every single time the main character does something, they're successful. Um, the characters have to find challenge and they have to find um, uh, walls to hit and things to overcome, obstacles. Um, and so part of the job of the facilitator or the game master is to provide the obstacles in the world for the players to overcome. Uh, but since we're telling a story together those obstacles should be surmountable. Those obstacles should be obstacles that both provide a challenge and then are, are something that the players can overcome. Um, and so really kind of giving that as a, as a baseline, as an underlying idea to what you're trying to do in this experience to the game master, I think is one of the, the most important pieces to, to being able to create that. I mean, ultimately, sort of what you're talking about, how do you instill the aspect of playfulness? I think the best way to do that is to remind the game master um, throw whatever rules you want out the window if it's going to serve your your group and your table. Yeah. There's also been an interesting sort of design challenge in writing up some of the facilitator's guide because we want it to be accessible. And Adam and I will have uh, meetings where we will talk about really high-level concepts. And there's a, a desire... I mean, I like to... I like to use big words as, as uh, you know, uh, conceptual chunks, um, but I have to sort of hold myself back and not necessarily tell all the game masters about equipotential and equifinality, um, <laughs> but just to, like, let them know that stories have, you know... Lots of paths. It, lots of paths, you know, <laughs> uh, right? So um, there's definitely... Uh, that's been an interesting design challenge as well um, as far as the facilitator's guide because I think there is uh, an amazing book uh, in the works for for really the high level conceptual stuff that we really like to talk about but that's maybe not nearly as useful for the facilitators as stories have lots of paths also kelly i'm, I'm really glad that you that you mentioned the the stuff being developed by i thrive because i'm so excited to see uh i i haven't gotten a chance to play testing yet, and i'm so excited to <gasps> see it and, and one of the things that i'm i'm really excited about and and I think some of this doesn't come across necessarily in some of the advertising for Critical Core, but the really important parts of Critical Core are in the modules and the facilitator guide over the the sort of stripped down rule set. And so I'm I'm sort of excited about a future where um, I want to kind of hand you some of the Critical Core modules and have you test the storylines and obstacles, but within the the iThrive uh, game system. 
the critical strengths engine. Yeah, exactly the, the critical strengths engine, and uh, because I, I think the the there's an opportunity. We're really designing the modules to be largely system agnostic, um, and uh, I really think there's an opportunity to 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 combine a lot of those things for for a really powerful punch in in uh, I guess role playing therapeutic power. I am so excited. <laughs> one, obviously, we're gonna have to get you guys a, a dev kit because. You need one. Um, can make that happen. We were both making these different engines, these these different games, like in parallel, and had no idea. <laughs> and a lot of the struggles that you guys that you have talked about, I'm like, yep, yep, I know that one. And a lot of the triumphs that you guys have seen so far, I'm like, oh, I hope, I hope we're on target for that mm -hmm. um, as as well. I saw some of the uh, what was it the, the not the backer rewards, but the um, the stretch goals. Oh gosh. Yes, I saw some of the stretch goals that you guys had, and you're, you know, no slouches there either. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're getting to work with uh, Shannon Germain and uh, Jerry Holkins, which we're really excited about. Yeah, <laughs> and for those who might not know those names, uh, Shannon Germain uh, is one of the co-founders and owners of Monty Cook Games that make Numenera and The Strange, and she's also one of the creators. I think the, the primary creator for No Thank You Evil, which is a, a um, RPG specifically designed for younger kids. Um, uh, and she's an amazing writer um, on on top of all that. And then Jerry Holkins is one of the owners um, and creators of Penny Arcade, um, who, in addition to making the Penny Arcade comic, also make um, uh, put on packs um, at multiple locations across the U.S. The Penny Arcade Expo every year. Um, and uh, uh, Jerry also uh, has been vocal about his um, personal engagement with his own kids, sort of neurodiverse challenges. Um, and he's had, a, I guess, a, a storyline that he's been working on for years uh, with his with his own kids that he's really excited to to sort of incorporate and put into into the format we're going to give him. That's so cool. Um, so we're we're almost out of time. So there's a couple more things I, I definitely want to you know touch on before we we say goodbye. Sure. Um, one of which is what kind of obstacles do you see to getting one um you know critical core out there further or just therapeutic rpg wider dispersed more well known more well recognized um yeah what are what are some of the big challenges that you guys see and potentially how to overcome them hmm well there's a lot of um, immediate challenges for critical core that we're uh, right in the middle of dealing with, both in in development and and also just sort of general logistical challenges that um, are just always a, a a challenge to overcome when you're trying to release a product. But I think actually the biggest challenges are are really on a, I guess a um in an attitude level. We're we're an amazing place as a um, as a society or as a culture for for geek culture where. Um, geeks and gamers are, are really becoming a really big part of mainstream culture. And um, things like role-playing games that can be used in a way to help you grow and improve your life are about a perspective shift. Um, and so a, a big part of the goal of Game to Grow is to ultimately change the way people play games, to help um, instill an idea that you can play games in a way that helps you grow, that helps you improve your life, um, and, that, and that you can come at your games with a level of reflection and intentionality um, that will help you to learn more about yourself through that experience. And that is a, a perspective change for society. Um, and that's a big lofty goal. 
hole for us. Um, but <laughs> just starting small, right? You know? Exactly. <laughs> um, but I think as a as like a really big challenge, one of the things that we're facing is is how do we help people learn uh, how to view their games with a with a different a different viewpoint. So we think games have the capacity to make everyone's life better, but we don't just want people to game more. We want them to game better. Don't just game. Game to grow. Oh my god. I, I can I can hear it right now in like the bumper for the show. This is gonna be like the lead in teaser. It's just it's so set up so perfectly. Yeah. Um and then you you saying it, you saying it in that voice, um reminds me uh, a lot of clinical role. And I want, wondered if you guys wanted to give a shout out to your your role in that project. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, clinical role has been a really fun project to be a part of um, and really put on and organized so much by uh, Megan Cannell, who's, who's just been, um, and, and geeks like us who, who have just been so spectacular in, in helping to get that started. Uh, but it's a live stream uh, D&D game that we play um, along with, um, Megan Cannell, who's the, who's the game master, and then uh, Dr. B or Rafael Bocamazzo, um, as well as um, Rachel Cowart and uh, Jack Birkenstock. Um, and we play, I guess, every other week, about about every other week. Um, and so it's it's really a game for fun, but we do get a lot of opportunity to, to sort of touch on psychological concepts or start to dig a, a little bit into uh, like the emotional reflection of a character versus a player. If you're interested, dear listeners, uh, this is Clinical Role. It is on the Geeks Like Us Twitch channel every other Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern. I'll throw in another plug. Um, Adam Johns is also a game master on a uh, podcast um, that I play in, and that one's the Psychology in Seattle podcast. Oh, yeah, that's true. You can check that out, uh, Psychology in Seattle. Um, so as we as we wrap up here, I want to make sure that I ask you guys, if someone wants to get a hold of a of a critical core kit, how can they do that? So uh, the Kickstarter is over, but we have a pre-order store. So if you go to the uh, critical core Kickstarter page, and I think there, you can get there easiest by going to criticalcore.org. Um, if you go to the uh, follow the link there to the, the Kickstarter page, there is a pre-order button. Um, where the uh, backer button used to be. Now it is a, a pre-order button, which, which will take you to our pre-order store. So you, there you can buy a pre-order kit. Um, you can also uh, choose to donate at that side. It, because we, one of the, the cool things about the Kickstarter project is we had the capacity for people to not purchase a kit for themselves, but to donate one to a, a hospital or a school or a clinic. Um, so we still have that feature available too through the pre-order store. And if people want to get in touch with you as the Adams, you as Game to Grow, where's the best place for them to find so you? So they can find us a couple of different places, um, primarily um, gametogrow.org. There is a contact page through there. They can send us a message. That we're also on Twitter at, at Game to Grow. That's T-O, Game, T-O, Grow. And we're on Facebook, uh, Game to Grow. A shout out to Kelly Dunlap. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Who is amazing. <laughs> oh, you guys. I'm blushing. You can't see it, but I'm, I stopped being weepy and now I'm blushing. Perfect. <laughs> Now I just well, need to go with the other other primal emotions. Let's see if we can make you furious. Yeah. How, how about no? How about, <laughs> how about we not make me scared or uh, ragey? Uh, Ragey's not hard okay. though. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, if you want ragey, just get me into one of your D and D games, and you'll see that come out pretty quick. <laughs> yes, uh, anyway, that that we need to make happen. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
All right. Well, thank you guys so much for being on the show and for sharing your expertise. And congratulations again on your Kickstarter. That is so amazing and well-deserved. Thank you so much. Perfect. For having thank us. you so much for having us on, Kelly. And that's it for this episode of Beyond Gameplay. Much love and thanks to the Adams for their time. And if you haven't already checked out Game to Grow or Critical Core, please do so. If you happen to be in the Seattle area for PAX West, Game to Grow and the Adams are going to be there and have a table on the show floor. So be sure to go by, say hi, and support them if you can. This is our last episode of the Therapeutic Role-Playing Game series. We'll be back in November with a brand new set of episodes. Beyond Gameplay is a production of the iThrive Games Foundation, a 501c3 organization. For more information about how iThrive uses games and game design to prepare teens to thrive, visit us at iThriveGames.org. The show is hosted by me, Kelly Dunlap, and is produced by I Am Trin with direction from Dr. Susan Rivers and Jane Lee. Audio engineering and theme music was created by the noisy game maker Ethan Goss Alexander. Marketing and PR was coordinated by Just Class and Sierra Martinez. Thank you for going beyond gameplay, where humanity is the core mechanic.